Podcast ain't play nobody. Real quick before we start the show, I, I want to be clear and kind of give a, a little trigger warning to you if you are someone who is sensitive to descriptions of uh, the legalities around sexual assault. We are going to get into a little bit of what happened at Michigan State uh, in 2017. And, and if you're someone who's sensitive to that, I, I just want to make clear that you should probably skip uh, from minute seven to around 1030. Uh, that's the time frame where we'll be discussing that stuff. All right, bud. Mark D'Antonio resigns February 4th, the day before Legacy Signing Day, February Signing Day, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it came out of nowhere by all accounts. Quickly, where does Michigan State go from here? Um, with our therapy words, I think I feel I know. I think uh, the tires of Luke Fickle and Pat Narduzzi are going to be kicked on this Luke Fickle at Cincinnati and Pat Narduzzi, obviously Pitt head coach, former um, former Michigan State defensive coordinator. I think Michigan State could do a lot worse than Chris Creighton at Eastern Michigan, as well. Uh, you have kind of your own name to kind of you know a, 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 an I feel, um, and we talked about it before the show that I think could be really interesting for the job as well. I fully agree with all the names you threw out there. I'm going to throw out an I feel, and this is not a I feel they will get this person, but this is an I feel they should at least go after this person, and that would be Matt Campbell at Iowa State. Um, they're in a weird spot here timing-wise, though. Like they, they don't have the same leverage, I don't believe, that they might have had if they had opened earlier in the cycle. Because this was actually a pretty good, pretty good cycle to hire coaches in, but like this is – a really difficult time to hire somebody. I mean, it's signing day is literally today. Uh, yeah, as we're this, recording this, the like this was out of nowhere because D'Antonio was still employed by a certain point. Like I don't, I don't like if he had stepped down December one, right? None of us who coast the show, I don't think, would have been that shocked, right? But because it went past early signing period, which totally sucks for those kids. I know we'll get to that uh, who, who signed with him. Um, now I think it is really a, a pretty big surprise. I, I was I was shocked yesterday when the news came out. Yeah, I um, you know, it's from all accounts, it does sound like D'Antonio left. I mean, it it really sounds like D'Antonio retired in a sense of it took everybody kind of off guard. And if you were gonna retire premeditatively it would have happened like you said december 1st it does but, not make a ton for, of sense to leave february 1st but yes he secured for, the bag the yes he did secure the bag and it does make me wonder okay he had to stay on till what the 15th to get to get the uh, the extra Jan yes january 15th mark d'antonio has or i guess had a contract that basically rolls over every year if he's employed at a certain date and that date is roughly mid january um he obviously was employed mid-January, and he got that $4.3 or $4.6 million. He got all of it, and it doesn't sound like Michigan State's going to come for it because I think uh, Nardu, or sorry, I think D'Antonio is going to stay on staff in the, at the school in some way, shape, or form. There's a lot of reasons why Michigan State would not try to come for that money, as we'll get to in, in a minute. Um, that I'm sure Michigan State would like if D'Antonio uh, has a solid opinion of Michigan State and and is continue to be hopeful for the future of that Michigan State program. Uh so yeah, I I would my guess is that they would not be coming for that money. And I, I can't I can't fault anybody for securing the bag, right? You, you gotta feed the fam. <laughs> but like do we even know if Michigan State 
were, were they in on this? Do you think his bosses knew he was going to do this and be like, yeah, like we'll, we'll we'll let you go ahead and do this and, and stay on so you can get your bonus and, and then then you can walk? Well, you know, it depends. Like we are going like. I'm going to get to some of the other context around D'Antonio's firing that I think is important, but I do want to talk about some of the institutional stuff around D'Antonio in a sense of, were they aware that he was going to leave? Is this a push-out situation? Is this a forced retirement situation, which obviously D'Antonio denied. He says that this is a celebration of his career yesterday at the press conference um, that preceded a basketball game. But, you know, Dan Murphy of ESPN, I believe, reported that the coaches, his assistant coaches were caught off guard. Um, D'Antonio said that he started crafting this statement a week ago. Um, it the, You cannot sit here, though, and say the timing of this isn't strange. And that's why I don't think a lot of people are taking this, you know, at face value for a lot of reasons. But even before we get to some of the reasons we're about to get to, it's the day before signing day. Like, wait, what? Right. Uh, Also, he might have have done his guys on staff a real solid in that. I think the timing of this drastically increases the chance that they're able to stay on staff and that perhaps Michigan State makes an internal hire. Uh, Just punts on at, this year? Yeah, at least for this year, right? And if that guy does really well, then you know maybe they keep the staff on. Uh, my, my guess is that long-term they won't keep the whole staff on. I, I would think they'd want to sort, sort of reset. But if you're D'Antonio, you're like, okay, I'm going to take care of the people who really have taken care of me. That would be the admin who's had my back. I'm going to take care of myself and get that bag, and I'm going to take care of my assistants and try to uh, retire at the last possible minute, which makes it almost impossible to fire them for the upcoming year. Mike Tressel is the interim head coach there. Yes, son of Jim. That is where the conspiracy theory comes from, that Jim Tressel will be the next Michigan State head coach. Um, obviously, D'Antonio coached under Jim at Ohio State back, when, back in the early 2000s. But I... I want to go into some of the uh, the other context around his resigning, retirement, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I would be remiss, we would be remiss if we didn't. Um, there are two, I guess, semi-concurrent sexual assault investigations into four players. This goes back to 2017. Um, I'm going to hit the broad strokes of it here, but if you want to know some more, a good place to start is the excellent MLive.com timeline of these investigations that go into a lot more detail. But... Uh, The first one looked into three players stemming from a sexual assault complaint in January of 2017. Donnie Corley, Josh King, and Demetric Vance were all charged. They ended up getting a plea deal to a lesser charge of felony seduction. Uh, The woman who filed the complaint said that she agreed to a plea deal for the sake of her own mental health. All three men were initially suspended and later kicked off the team when they were formally charged in June of 2017. D'Antonio was later found to have no wrongdoing by an external investigation. Uh, February 14th of 2017, Michigan State staffer Curtis Blackwell was suspended. He was, I guess, a recruiting liaison is, is what you call it. Basically, he had ties to the Detroit area and and was kind of... Michigan State's guy in that area and and helping Michigan State recruit and get players there. And he had started, uh, he co-founded Sound Mind, Sound Body, which was like a development program. I know they had like like a seven-on deal. Um, they had they had camps and stuff. It was uh, pretty like, as far as these things go, it was a, a fairly like well-known 
student high school student development organization. Right, right. And you you said you met Blackwell once at a, at a camp. Yeah, yeah. I've I've met him one time, I believe. I don't think I like we were not tight or anything. Right, right. Um, but he had been with the team for four years up until that point. We'll come back to Curtis Blackwell in a second. Um, but in April of 2017, Austin Robertson was charged with criminal sexual uh, conduct. He was kicked off the team and later pled guilty to one count of assault with intent to commit uh, sexual penetration. He came to Michigan State with prior sexual misconduct, and he was in the recruiting class that all four of these players were in, which I believe was called like the Dream Team or something. It was big for Michigan State, um, and Michigan State admitted him into school anyway. D'Antonio kind of defended the processes that went into that decision. Uh, and then in May of 2017, Blackwell was fired by D'Antonio, and an external investigation found that he allegedly did not report the news about the January 2017, he being Blackwell, did not report the news and didn't run it up the flagpole, the January 2017 sexual assault complaint, uh, etc. Now, all of this in 2017, by the way, is in the context of the broader Larry Nassar, Larry Nassar scandal with the hundreds of gymnasts who were assaulted over years by Larry Nassar, the trainer of Michigan State. Um, that scandal saw the athletic director resign, as well as the interim president. Uh, Michigan State had like three presidents in the span of 18 months. Um, all of this is to say that the context surrounding Michigan State is that it is an absolute mess. That doesn't get near the fact near it that the team on the field had been diminishing returns since Narduzzi left as defensive coordinator in 2015 after the playoff year. Um, they started diminishing returns. And and Bud, I'm kind of bringing you back in here. You know, I had talked to I talked to one guy last night, uh, an agent. I was like, look, it's an absolute mess. You know, do you really would you really want to place a head coach there? Kind of asked him the question. And he was like, not really, given everything that's gone on and and the state of the administration and all that sort of stuff, that notwithstanding the fact that, you know, the sun, moon, and stars of the state is your rival team and you're in the harder part of that division. All of that, you know, confluence is the reason why Michigan State kind of is in the position that they are right now. Yeah, th- this was a an interesting thing that, that went on there. Michigan State forever kind of made, and we're talking a little recruiting angle here because it is National Signing Day. Michigan State's bread and butter was really sort of living in that like top 30 recruiter range where they found a lot of kids who were undervalued by other programs for whatever reason. Typically not like, hey, you know, sexual assault reasons. Like that's not, I'm not talking about like use use that as a marketing efficiency, obviously. I'm talking about like other reasons, you know, kid was un- undersized or something like that. And they did a really good job of developing those kids, and, and they and they won a heck of a lot of ball games. And then they got stomped by Alabama there in that in that uh, that playoff game, and it sort of reinforced, in my opinion, what their ceiling was. And that was the 2016 playoff, I think. Yeah, or I think it was the 2016 January, something like. That. Or because 2015 they made the Rose Bowl or won the Rose Bowl. I'm not entirely straight on the chronology there, but yes, that time gotcha. frame. Okay, so that was the Bama team that lost at Clemson because Clemson won 16 and 18, right? And then yes. Bama won 17 and then 19 LSU's won. Yes. Okay. So Michigan State realizes it needs to get more talent out there. Some of these kids they took, it was very well known that uh, there were some issues there, especially with the Robertson kid. And like, they tried to up their talent level 
kind of by any means necessary, and it really bit him in the ass. Um, I mean, and these weren't like, you know, school-run kangaroo court-type verdicts. Like, these are like real charges, like in yeah. real court. You know, like like when you're talking about stuff where you actually have the opportunity to present evidence and present a defense and whatnot, and like real charges, real convictions. So you have that going on. Then you have Blackwell suing the university because they let him go uh, for what they claimed was some changes in camp recruiting rules, and they had the opportunity to uh, hire somebody who they thought was better for the job, and Blackwell is presenting himself here as the fallout guy, and we have all this testimony from some of the <laughs> depositions coming out. Right, because this this is – and what Bud is getting at is the last 14 or 15 months of this deal. So uh, they fire Blackwell in May. Um, and then Blackwell turned around and sues um, D'Antonio. He sues the former AD, and he sues the former president on wrongful termination grounds. Um, it's – it is a – they fired – a guy who knows where I where the you know where the bodies are buried for lack of a better term or who would know in Blackwell and when you do that when you give someone a motive to sue you he is gonna do I mean this thing is pretty nasty I mean the lawyers are sniping over like the length of depositions and whether or not, um, I believe, whether or not, like, Blackwell's people, like, leaked a sealed deposition at one point in time that was unsealed and then resealed. So, basically, what happened hours before D'Antonio steps down is back, Blackwell's lawyers say that Blackwell would be willing to file an affidavit saying that D'Antonio orchestrated employment for the parents of two Michigan State football players with a mega donor and that D'Antonio had Blackwell come with him on a recruiting trip, which would be a violation because Blackwell was not actually an on-field coach. All of this is going on surrounding the end of the Mark D'Antonio era. And all of this kind of, this is the end tale. This is the end of what had previously been the most successful 10-year stretch, 15-year stretch of Michigan State football since like the 60s. Um, but the end of it is the end. This is the end of the story and the end of why, uh, part of the reason why Mark D'Antonio steps down. Um, there's there's just a lot going on here. And it's, it's a lot more than just Mark D'Antonio wanted to spend more time with his family. You know, D'Antonio said that, you know, this has nothing to do with why he's leaving. But it's it's really really hard and i'm kind of processing the news or how i feel about the news kind of in real time here it's just hard for me to sit and say mark d'antonio uh resigns the day before signing day hours after curtis blackwell's lawyers file this and i'm just supposed to take that at face value i i, I don't know i don't know but i do want to ask you just from like a lawyer perspective like how is it how nasty do these things kind of get? Because Mark D'Antonio got deposed, and it and there's a there's a really good Detroit news story um, about this whole deal that also says that Mark D'Antonio, the school, and Blackwell don't really have designs to settle this, which is one, which is another thing. So I never practiced employment law, I'll say it off the bat, but when you have two sides that really uh, seem to dislike each other, and don't have a whole lot of motivation to settle if if that's what you believe. Now, 
then it can get pretty nasty. Of course, leaking some of this information can be a little bit of a warning shot that, hey, like we're willing to go the distance with this if you don't want to settle this. Oftentimes, schools uh, and any kind of government offices, they don't settle stuff oftentimes because they realize that like it's much easier, especially if this is like, like an elected position where the, the person making the decision has, has decided to settle or not. It's just kind of easier to say, oh, the crazy jury verdicts in courts, right? Whereas right. if you settle it, it, it admits weakness in some ways. But this certainly could get ugly. It very much ties into uh, if a new coach takes this position. For instance, let's say that there, if there was evidence that what Blackwell is claiming is true about uh, the employment for the parents uh, of recruits that Michigan State ended up signing, uh, that would be an NCAA violation. Now, this is something that happens all the time. Like we, you and I both know of some kids whose parents <laughs> got big time promotions like from fr- from the floor of the stock room to like four levels up managing yeah. the whole floor quickly. And it's a normal thing that happens. And I root for it to happen because, hey, man, like if you played any other sport, you could probably just get a check. That'd be a little bit easier. Right. And you but, can take and the kid could take care of his parents. Yes. Right. Exactly. So, but that could be a violation. You could. If proven true, uh, you could have some sort of restrictions on your recruiting, which would impact the, uh, the attractiveness of the job, at least in the short term, which does kind of bring me to a point. Like, I think if you're a really proven head coach, a guy who's who's done a really good job and, and is going to have options, if you take Michigan State, you're going to say, hey, give me a Matt Rule Baylor style deal. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't want a five year contract. I want a seven year contract. That's close to ninety percent guaranteed because Big, I want it to be so painful. Capital G, baby. Yeah, and I right like, and you know what? It's not about just I want to cash in on 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 their on their lack of leverage. It's also this might take me a minute. Yeah, right. I want to make sure that I have it. Like it's painful enough for them to fire me that they're going to give me that kind of of, of time to rebuild this thing that I need because the rest of the East does not appear to be slowing down. Exactly, and if you I mean, come in and and in six months. You've got five or six or seven or eight less scholarships over the next three years. You are not going to keep up with the Joneses that are Michigan, that is uh, Penn State, and Ohio State. You are going to get left behind, no questions asked. Exactly right. So, okay, since 2010, here are the win totals in the league for Michigan State. All right, ready for this? Mm. Seven, seven, three, eight, seven, seven, one, seven, five, four. You're probably averaging like six and two a year in the league over the last decade. I mean, I I think, right? That'd be That's roughly, roughly. 14, yeah. 17, 25, 39, 40, 52, and 56 over 10 years. So it's like it's like I think if I did that right. So you're you're talking about five and a half and two and a half on average. Yeah. That's not easy to do. And it's probably even harder now to, that they actually uh you know they switch divisions, right? Yeah. Because uh, it used to be leaders, legends, and they were actually in sort of the, the easier side. Is that when they were the when they were winning the league? It was leaders and legends. So, uh, correct. Yeah, they went okay. seven and one, seven and one, three and five, and eight and zero oh when it was leaders, legends. Yeah. Since the shift to divisions, seven and one, seven and one, but then one and eight, seven and two, five and four, four and five. Right. Right. By the way, I think we were wrong about the 2016 playoff team being the one, uh, I think it was the 2015 playoff team that lost to Alabama, uh, because in 2016 they went 3-9 and nine overall, which is not uh, – but it actually fits the narrative even more. They have an awesome year, 2015. 
Bama stomps them out, and then they say, hey, we, if we're going to compete on this level, we got to have a better quality of talent. They end up taking a couple character reaches. Those character reaches all bite them in the ass almost yeah. immediately, too. I mean, like within months of being on campus. Yeah. Uh, or weeks in some cases. Um, yeah, I, I would want a, a significant guaranteed deal because I do feel like this can be a really nice job. Okay, their facilities are nice. They're clearly very much committed to winning. Um, their division is very tough, but I would want a guaranteed deal that gives me the length to do something here. What's uh, what's nice, quickly, before we get to the SPAP and questions, what's what's nice here? Are we talking, you know, are we talking nine and three? Are we talking, like, how many times, if I gave you, let's say you don't know NCAA violations end up coming. Let's say, you know, you have carte blanche for five years. How many times do you win in the East in five years? Ooh, a half? I mean, like, if I, if I put, it, put the over-under at a half. Yeah. I don't, I'm not real confident going over or under. I mean, you have Ohio State, which is competing with, like, Georgia, Bama, LSU, Clemson on a recruiting trail. Michigan is not taking that next step, but they're not but slowing they're still, down right. It's still 10 wins every year. Yeah, and Penn State is still recruiting very well. Uh, I mean, three out of the last four years in the East, you finished fourth, fifth, sixth. Yeah. One tie for second. I mean, there's been a little bit of a shift there. And apparently Indiana got a little something-something to them now, too. So yeah, that's they're gonna, doing a good job there. Right. That's going to eat into you know your your top line here. Um, I, I don't know. I When I think about candidates for this job, I think, like, if I'm a candidate for this job, and it's February, and, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if now would be the time – to take the Michigan State job beyond the fact that it is a Big Ten job, what carrot does that job currently have in its cap, or what feather in the cap does that job currently have? Yeah, I mean, it's as far as like the ability to win the Big Ten, it is certainly. For instance, do you think it's easier to win the Big Ten at Michigan State or at Wisconsin? I think Wisconsin. Wisconsin, that's one hundred percent because because of your path, right? Right. Nebraska or Michigan State. Probably Nebraska. I think if you're in the, I think it's in the West. You the West. If you're in the West, give me the West. I'll figure it out against uh, against Wisconsin, and I'll figure it out against Minnesota. But those two teams, they just, and I'm not even talking on my ass here. At what point in time does Wisconsin and Minnesota scare you in any way, shape, or form, like Penn State or Ohio State or Michigan? There's a level of athlete those schools in the West don't get as frequently uh, on, on their football teams as some of the teams in the East do. Also, the, and this is the last thing before we kind of get to the ask uh, to the ask questions, but if I'm coming in here, you want to talk about the 2020 schedule? And I know last week I fucking railed against scheduling, but, <laughs> scheduling conversations, but uh, let's talk about the schedule next year. You go September 26th, you play Miami, then you go Iowa, Michigan, Ohio State, Indiana, Minnesota, Penn State in a row uh, there's a bye week before Penn State. That also includes, on September 12th, a road trip to BYU. It's not a cakewalk in year one either. So it Michigan State, there may be a, you know, a, a pretty hard and fast drop-off for Michigan State coming quite soon, and, and it's, it's a situation where the bottom of it might really fall out, and 
potentially D'Antonio was kind of keeping that thing together as best he could or as best anybody could, um, given the situation, and the bottom might fall out on this thing. Um, it, it really could bottom out before it gets better. I mean, that, that's why I keep going back to um, – no, look, I, I'm not going to try to e- equate the, the – the scale of the wrongdoing at Michigan State football with Baylor football, right? Because I think it's pretty clear Baylor was longer, more systemic, et cetera, at least as far as what we know. But like as Baylor, far as the football, Baylor, as far as football is concerned, yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. I want to make that clear. Football only. But Baylor had to bottom out, right? And Matt Rule did a really good job there. It's certainly possible that uh, that a similar arc could happen at Michigan State. And look, Baylor was back. I think. Under Matt Rule, faster than I thought they were going to get back. I mean, probably faster than other people, too. I, mean, I don't want to say everybody. Maybe some people really, really believed how fast he could do that. I didn't think he'd have him in the Big 12 title game this fast. The one thing that I think that Baylor had in their favor, obviously, was that Texas hadn't really gotten it figured out. Like, Texas never really got it figured out since Matt Rule's been there. Obviously, Oklahoma's been, you know, at the top. But they didn't really have to worry about – I mean, they were beating Texas. They didn't have to worry about – the Texas at the top line of that conference, and also there's no divisions, so you're not in potentially an unequally weighted division. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. But okay, so we'll transition to Ask PAP in here and, and we'll use the first one as kind of a, a transition here with recruiting because I do think it's, it is something that we need to think about in all of this is the young men who thought they were going to play for uh, Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State. At MU Engineer asks, how betrayed do recruits feel when something like D'Antonio happens, when a coach retires, gets fired, leaves uh, right around signing day? Are there a bunch of recruits in disarray tonight trying to reevaluate their choice? If they committed to Michigan State, have they had other offers rescinded that are no longer options? Great question. Let's go ahead and take this sort of one by one. Uh, I'm sure a number of them probably feel pretty betrayed because they think that there was some purposeful timing of this by D'Antonio, right? I'm sure they think, okay, what happened between today and December that caused you to have to wait for this and, and didn't give me a heads up? Now, we just discussed a lot of things happened, like right. depositions happened and leaked, you know, s- stuff that's now out there in the media happened. Uh, but, yeah, I'm sure there absolutely are some are, are pretty uh, pretty betrayed. Uh, are there a bunch of recruits in disarray tonight? I think that will largely depend on what happens with their assistants, Right? right, like you only have so much relationship with the head coach. Your most of your relationships are going to be with the assistants, with some of the staff. Uh, if that staff is retained, I, I don't think that they'll be in as much disarray. Although some uh, probably will. Uh, if they committed to Michigan State, have they had other offers rescinded that are no longer options? Yes, absolutely. Uh, other schools fill up, and if Michigan State signs you. Another school is going to take you off their board, and they're going to have to pursue another prospect, and that's that's certainly an issue there. Um, now, I want to make it clear: kids are not let out of their letters of intent by rule. Like, there's no automatic rule. I've actually proposed this before in articles on Banner Society. 
and previously SB Nation, like, hey, if a head coach leaves, uh, my, my proposal is always this. You should be able to designate three key people in your recruitment on the staff, right? And if any of those people leave before you enroll in the school, you should be able to get out of your letter of intent. Now, basically, coach, basically, what you're saying is you you want to designate kind of primary recruiters for sort of if you go on anybody's two four seven page uh, recently, it'll say primary and secondary recruiter uh, of a you know a top two four seven kid. Right. So I, I think it should be your head coach, the coordinator on the side of the ball that, that you and the staff agree you'll play, and then you can either pick like your position coach or like your area recruiter, whoever you had the best relationship with. Right. That way, I, I think this would actually be a decent compromise of those schools who never do it because they don't have to compromise at all but i think this would be a good compromise in that it would allow some protection for the school so that so it's just some random kid can't be like oh well the db coach left i'm leaving i want to yeah well dude you play offensive line so that seems kind (laughs) of like a cop out right (laughs) you know i think this would be a cool compromise i i really do now schools won't do it i i don't think uh because they have no incentive to to do so right now but the only really way, the only real way these kids are let out of their letters of intent typically is via like a PR campaign. They have to get out there. They have to say, hey, this is nonsense. This is unfair. And they have to make it a negative for the school. Uh, in this case, I guess that if kids want out, Michigan State will probably let them out because they don't want to have more publicity brought on the reasons why D'Antonio stepped down or the potential reasons why he stepped down. But, yeah, it, it's not automatic that uh, – uh, that these kids will be let out of their letters of intent simply because their head coach left, as much as it probably should be. So to the answer to the question, like, have they had other offers rescinded? Yeah. If they signed, 100% of their offers are rescinded because they can't go anywhere unless they're actually let out of their letters of intent. Yeah. In in 2020, the, the PR aspect is, I think, what's really interesting. In, in 2020, there's a difference in PR that schools actually care about than there was in 2005 if this happened. There is the shift in audience response in in audience um, kind of ingesting of this information like when a coach leaves for another school um, it's just a little bit different and schools have to kind of deal with that Uh, you know we are about to see in like mid-February there is still a shift in assistant pools um, not with not from a money perspective but from a just guys going different places Uh, the after the post signing day uh, assistant going to the NFL or assistant going to a different school is still very real in this sport. Uh, it's one of the underlying worst things that happened is, you know, for the last two, two and a half years, you've been talking to one coach and, and then that coach leaves. That still happens. Um, so the other thing is I, with the early signing period, I, I don't re- Let's divorce ourselves with the context of D'Antonio leaving, first and foremost. But if I am a head coach looking to retire, leave, whatever, when is the time to do it? Because if you leave December 1st, you've got now because of the other signing period or the signing period, um, you know, that's its own thing. If you leave, it's hard to leave in January because that's kind of the tail end of the recruiting period. You leave the day before signing day. It's not great. You leave the day after signing day. It's not great. Um, you know, you could pull a Bob Stoops and leave in June, but then there are some other organizational things that you have to deal with. Is there a good time to leave your program as a head coach? There's not really a good time to leave your program. No. Um, the, that's a great point. Like you, you can you can identify somebody who's getting the short end of the stick pretty much any time of the year, right? And that sucks. Uh, 
the best time, or the best way to remedy this, and it's not a timing issue, it's to let players out of their letters of intent automatically, I think, right? Yeah. But there is no best time. I mean, now, if you could do it, if you could say, hey, like, I don't know, October 1, like, hey, guys, I want to let you know I'm, now I'm not leaving like right this minute, but this is my last year. Honestly, the Spurrier, right? if you pull a Spurrier, now I know Spurrier left. But right. if you pull a Spurrier and not actually leave, if you pull a Spurrier and say, hey, I'm leaving. And you announce. Yeah, almost like uh, like, like one of those farewell tours. Uh, like, for instance, Bud Foster this year. Everybody yes. knew that was going to yeah. be his last year. In baseball, like C.C. Uh, Sabathia had, had one Derek of those, Jeter, right? yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I think that would be a good way to do it because you could also start your coaching search very early. Yeah, and yet, and and kind of get the jump on on everybody. Get a jump, and you can kind of do it kind of out in the open, and where you don't have to like screw anybody over or or anything like that. And to be honest, not a ton of recruiting is really done during the season anyway. Um, so in a sense of like FaceTime and that kind of stuff, so you kind of can get away with it if you kind of leave, you know, October one or something like that, or announce it October one. Um, you do kind of punt the back half of the season, but you know, the other thing is maybe you reinvigorate the team. And they play for you, and you get your send off. Whatever. Um, we'll stay in the Big Ten for the next question that comes from at Country Codes Eleven. Uh, is a CFP berth the only thing between James Franklin and a top five recruiting class at Penn State? Um, uh, can he get there without a? Can he get to the playoff without a top five class? And separately, what programs or coaches have the clout to be top five without on field top level success? I like. I'll take this from. First, because I think I think fans think that players care more about on-field success than they really do. I'm talking from like a from a player's perspective. I mean, it's a level of hubris, uh, it's a level of pride. But as a player's perspective, I've been the shit my entire career. Middle school, likely peewee ball, high school. I've been the sun, moon, and stars. I've been it. I feel confident in my own ability, no matter what position I play, that I'm going to go to whatever school and I'm going to be the one that turns that turns it around. Me and my boys in this class are going to be the ones that turn it around. Every single recruiting class thinks they are going to be the recruiting class that turns it around for whatever school they are going to. They think they are going to take that school to the top. So results both do and don't matter. But I don't think results on the field I guess I guess I'm kind of talking about top level programs more than anything, but I I don't think top level programs results matter as much as a lot of people think they do. I I think that's largely true, um, with the one exception of like if the results are so poor that like it leads to the idea that perhaps the staff won't be there throughout your tenure. Like if that, USC that, goes two and ten. Sure, exactly. Um, you know, or if USC, I don't know, maybe. We'll get to that question well, in a second. <laughs> uh, so how does Penn State get to a top five recruiting class? First of all, Pennsylvania is not the state it used to be as far as talent. I mean, a, a lot of that part of the country does not have the same talent that it used to have. I, I do think actually a more uh, attractive offense to play in would, would be helpful. Penn State has largely been a better defensive team than it has been an offensive team in the last couple of years. Um, you know, the, What's the one difference there in Ohio State and the other two big programs in Michigan and Penn State in that league? It's scoring points. They all play pretty damn good defense. Ohio State actually plays a fun 
exciting offense to play in. Although Michigan's got better down the stretch, and Penn State has had one prior. Just last two years have been, what, like good but not amazing necessarily? Yeah, it's been fits and starts. The last Moorhead year and then the Ronnie year this year, it's you know, it's been fits and starts. They've been trying to figure it out. There's some fan fiction here if you want to go back and go back. What if they what if they somehow managed to hold on to Justin Fields the year that he took off and all of a sudden tore up the opening and, and became, you know, a real contender for the number one player in the whole nation? And flipped to Georgia, I, yeah. Yeah, he flipped to Georgia. Like if they had kept him, he was probably dynamic enough and, and would have resonated enough with some of the other top kids that uh that really, I mean, maybe you get a couple more kids to follow you that year, and maybe Penn State does end up with the top five class. Uh, can he get there to the playoff of that top five class? Absolutely. Yes, guys, there are a ton of teams out there who get to the playoff who don't sign top five classes. Win the playoff? A little tougher. <laughs> Getting to the playoff? No doubt. I mean, talk to Washington, talk to Michigan State, talk to Wisconsin, talk, talk to Oregon. Right, exactly. A lot of teams can get there. Can you actually win? Um, you know, I mean, Oklahoma has not had a whole lot of top five recently, but they do get there. Um, what teams or coaches have the clout to be top five without on-field top-level success? All right, well, I'll start in in, in Aggieland because Jimbo's done it before. So I guess he does have the on-field success, not at A&M. Not current. I mean, it's been four years. Right. If he's engaged, you know, and like actually focused and is motivated to do the job, the guy's a hell of a recruiter. Yeah. And he has all, all the money in the world there at A&M. Not, I'm not talking about like dropping bags money in the world, but like as far as the ability to hire staff and uh, and, and go out and – I mean, the guy's get, on a 10-year, whatever, $77 million deal, whatever it is. Correct. Yeah, there's, there's, there's some job security there uh, to be sure. So I, I think Jimbo would be one of the names. Um, trying to think who else here for sure. Uh, within the SEC, Mullen has not gotten there. But I think he has enough success there where I feel like it's it's possible. You know, like they – I think their class is actually pretty nice. Um, they didn't have the finish that they wanted to today just in the last, like, hour that we've been taping this. I don't know if, you, if you've been on Twitter. But um, overall, I think he maybe could be one of the guys that could bust through. I'm trying to think who else – is there anybody I'm missing here off the top of my head? Oregon could, could land a top five class potentially. Yeah. Um, but they, I mean, their class this year was was pretty darn good. It, it it's not. They're like one more big time class away from probably like busting through on the blue chip ratio. Yeah. Um, Do you think who? I I know you haven't crunched the numbers, but it, off the top of your head, who's going to be in it next year? That had been close, or just off the top of your head, I know you could be wrong when you actually do the numbers, but probably A and M. Um, I think Miami will probably be close to dropping out, but I'm not sure. Like dropping they, they out. Yeah, they might have just been a one-year entry. Um, but, like, they're not, like, way out of it, you know, just right. barely. Uh, I think Oregon is probably just going to be just shy. So, I, looking back, I'm, I'm trying to think here. I think A&M was the one school that if they had another nice class put together that they would end up in it. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, okay, at UF Mark 79 asks, uh, any anticipated changing in signing periods? Um, adding another early signing period before the season starts, eliminating or moving either of the current windows. Um, I, I actually, and this was something that I was just going to ask you, so I'm glad you asked it. But, like, what do you think about early signing a few years in? We are now, what, three years into this? We have kind of, the, the players who signed this year are truly, 
you know, early signing period babies in a sense of they know that they may have had to have a decision ready by mid-December or late December and it didn't catch anybody off guard. What do you think about just kind of how it's all played out now that we're three years in? Yeah, I really don't like it. Um, I, I wish that we would do uh, an initial signing period before the start of the year. Um, before for the, the season. Kids. Yeah, for the kids who truly have their stuff all together, who really know where they want to go, who have had their grades together and ready in order to be able to take spring and summer official visits, uh, and who I think you would have a lot fewer kids making rush decisions if you pu- pushed up the timeline even earlier there, because I think it would drastically cut down the number of kids who actually sign. And most of the kids are going to sign, I think, early on are going to be your legacy kids, your studs who have, have you know, already had the ability to visit a lot of these schools and, and quarterbacks. see them. Yeah, quarterbacks will still go early. A lot of your really high academic kids who, who already know where they want to go. Um, and then I don't really see the need for everybody to sign in December. right? We still have all these coaching changes going on. Why not push it back to the, the original date? for like I, I would go August and then the same you know February, first Wednesday in February date. It, I think it provides more information for the players who don't have their or who did not have their minds made up in December. We had so many coaching changes following the early signing period yet again, and yet these kids are locked in. And I'm sure some of them would like to make different decisions if they could do it over again. Now, they won't tell you that because that would be admitting fault, and most of these dudes don't do that. But uh, I mean, it's really I, I I think it's disadvantageous to the kids, uh, and I would like to see it moved, but I don't think it's going to move. So you're saying you're saying we would move the December signing day to like late July or August, yes. and we kind of get that done, and there would be no December signing day, and then there would be the same legacy February signing day that we've always had. Yeah, exactly right. I, yeah. I, I'm, 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 yeah. I, I just December now. Look, if you're an early enrollee, you don't really even sign in December. You can just enroll early. For early the, for the spring based- semester. Early enrollees basically means um, a high school kid who basically graduates or at least finishes his high school curriculum at the end of his uh, the his senior fall, and then exactly enrolls right. in whatever school in early January. That is very common in a sense of like every class, top level class has like what five to ten of those kids every year, right? And that, that's the thing, man. Like, I just don't think. That's also not new. Like that's been going on for you know a decade and a half, roughly. Right. Yeah. It's it, it's it's constantly going. On. I just I don't see what the real benefit is to the kid for December. I know the coaches love it because they, they 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 get it out of the way. They get to spend Christmas with their families. I mean, it's they're they're big fans of it. Did you I, when it was being proposed and talked about and all that stuff? Were you in favor of December? No, I, I, I've really been stuck with this like the August and, and February system throughout. I did not anticipate this many kids signing early, though. Because it's thought, like 90. I thought some would wait and weigh their options, but it's always their first time going through the process. Yeah. Now it's the school's third or fourth time going through it. And it's like 90% of the, the top 247. I mean, I don't know if you know the number, but it's a yeah, lot it's a of these bunch. kids have signed. The top it's, kids have signed. It's a ton. Uh, what for, for? By the way, uh, Will Muschamp is going to be at the ceremony today for his son, who's signing Jackson, uh, God, and also wow. Jordan Birch, who is the uh, who's the the big time defensive end who's committed to them but decided not to sign early and LSU trying to get him to flip. 
this could be like epic pressure if he turns down Will Muschamp. And by the time you listen to this, this will already be done. But like, if he does decide to flip to LSU, which I don't think, that would be like the old. Like, can you imagine that you're a, a, the college head coach? You show up and the kid flips to LSU right in front of you, <laughs> like next next to the table with your son. Um, God, this sport's ridiculous. Um, okay, it really is. at RR five four eight one asks, what's the explanation behind Harbaugh losing his top recruiter? Charlie Partridge to Ole Miss. Is this a bad sign of where the Harbaugh era is headed? Um, that's one question. And then uh, a question that I really want to get in with you is, what does uh, James Coley and Malchaw headed going from Georgia to Texas A&M tell us about the direction of those recruiting staffs? Let's start with the Partridge to Ole Miss thing and Michigan. So, um, two things. Number one, I don't really have a great answer for the Charlie Partridge to Ole Miss thing other than that, the idea that Look, Ole Miss is very much all in on recruiting. They feel like they have got to get really elite-level players to compete uh, in the SEC West. I don't disagree with them, by the way. Uh, like It is important to get good players. Uh, with the second question, James Coley leaving Georgia after they hired Todd Munkin and the quarterback's coach from Southern Miss – I just think the writing there was sort of probably on the wall. What um, is, so okay? So you having been around Florida State uh, at the peer, particularly the period you were around Florida State, what is Coley's real value to a staff? Because the experiment of him calling the offense did not work. Right, and he left for Miami at least in part so that he could call plays down there. Left Florida State for Miami. Yes, at the time. Correct. So now he's back to being the tight ends coach at Georgia or excuse me, at Texas A&M after calling plays last year for Georgia. I think Coley is a tremendous recruiter, like really is, is charismatic, very personable, nice dude. He, he connects with kids very well. Um, his offenses have had very mixed results, right? Some of them have been, I think, pretty disappointing. And I think you would put some of that on him. And some of it, some, you know, some of it maybe not, right? Like some, some of his Miami offenses, I think, had some Real personnel and kind of culture commitment issues, and I, I also the program. I also do think you can't discount Kirby potentially having his hands on a level of pace in, at, of the offense mm-hmm. or a level of you know, uh, let's call it thinking outside of the box for that offense. Um, that also does not get uh, to personnel and injuries that they had at Georgia with receivers and what Jake Fromm could or couldn't do or how Jake Fromm potentially regressed from the Rose Bowl year um, without Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb, funny how that works, to now. Exactly right. We're going to learn a lot about Georgia this year. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> because oh, yeah. If, if this offense looks exactly the same, this is probably a Kirby Smart issue and not a James Coley issue. Now, Georgia, or excuse me, Texas A&M, has really been trying to beef up their staff with with more and better recruiters. They, they ended up getting T.J. Rushing from Florida State after he had been on campus only like two weeks. They go out and get James Coley. Coley's clearly a guy that Jimbo Fisher knows is an elite recruiter because he helped him build that 2013 national title team, at least in part. And then with with, with Marshall Malchow, he's going to A&M. Like, that guy understands Georgia's recruiting operation. If you're, if you're Jimbo, you've been away from the mothership for a while, mm-hmm. right? Kirby was there with, with Nick much more recently – Maybe he wants a refresher on on some of the new tactics that they're using because Georgia just signed the number one class today. By the way, again, it hurts me. It hurts me. Um, I did, and we'll we will we will do Georgia all off season. I trust me. Um, but the one thing for Georgia as it moves into potentially a new era is it it boggles my mind that Georgia would sign Newman, um, 
and and bring in Munkin and that Kirby would not let the team transition into something that's a little bit more modern. Kirby has seen it done, at least in the beginning, at Bama and seen what opening the system up can do for your team when you are so, so good. I digress. At Tanman128 asks, what's the most confusing uh, slash no one knows what's going on recruiting saga that you can remember for one player? And how does everything uh, that has happened with Zach Evans compare to that? Zach Evans, five-star running back, uh, signed at Georgia and, I mean, basically backed out. Georgia let him him go. Um, And we'll get to that. But, like, I have a, a sort of a funny story about sort of like this. Stuff like this. I, um, me and you were actually at the Under Armour All American game. This was when I was still in college. Um, and Dalvin Cook at the time obviously ended up signing with Florida State, but Florida was in on him at that time. This is New Year's weekend or whatever. Um, that year, uh, Florida had just gotten his buddy Ermin Lane, or at least thought they had his buddy Ermin Lane coming to Florida. I was literally talking to Dalvin's Cook grand. Dalvin Cook's grandmother and asking her, you know, how the recruitment was going and and interviewing her and, you know, what's Dalvin going to do? Is Dalvin going to flip to Florida, et cetera, et cetera. Unbeknownst to me, Dalvin Cook was on ESPN set taping his commitment to Florida during Under Armour practice. Um, and I get upstairs and the news has been leaked out and I'm transcribing an interview of Dalvin Cook's grandmother saying she doesn't know what's going on and Dalvin Cook the news was coming out on Twitter that Dalvin Cook was going to be a Florida State Seminole. So that's my no one knows what's going on story. I know you Betty, have. Lord knows how many you have. Betty knew. Yeah. I I, I think Betty knew. Yeah. Or I, I don't know if Betty knew that it was going to go down that day on ESPN, but oh man, there's a lot of good ones. Shoot. Okay. That's how I that's that's how I got got as a student newspaper or as a student reporter. Um Zach Evans may be the best one yet. Yeah. Because I I mean Take us, take just, us through what's actually happened there. Okay, so like, there's numerous schools that he has silently indicated he's going to go to. This is a kid who is the best, like talent-wise, he's the best running back in the nation. There's really no doubt. He plays for Houston North Shore High School. Uh, he got suspended twice this year. Um, the last time, uh, the media reports down there basically said like he was the only one who refused to turn in his cell phone uh, before the high school state title game. The rest of the team did. It's sort of like a solidarity thing and like a focus thing. Probably like a hope these kids go to bed thing, right? Uh, before the, you know, before the, the state title game. So he gets suspended um, and uh, North Shore wins anyway. Jesus. Uh, allegedly, he was going to commit to Georgia earlier in the year. But then it was basically said, like, hold off because he got suspended the first time and, like, they didn't want to – it's just not a great look to, like, commit right after you just got suspended for the first time and then the second time as well. Um, he never even took an official visit to Georgia, yet signed with Georgia uh, in the early signing period. And literally, depending on who you believe, either Georgia declined to submit his letter of intent – or he decided to get cold feet again and backed out. And we know that Bama doesn't want to take him, uh, which is incredible because I'm telling y'all, like this kid is one of the best running back prospects talent-wise that you'll ever see. Uh, there's a lot going on with this recruitment, a lot of moving parts, a lot of people involved. Um, 
He is an amazing interview, by the way. He gave me like 12 minutes that were just completely all over the board. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm talking about just like contrasting answers back to back sentences. It was amazing. It is, it's funny when you when you interview recruits, it's there. Obviously, it's kind of a spectrum because some of them are some of them are already in the vein of like. Some of them are tired of the process, honestly. Some of them are so worn out with the process that they like don't want to give you anything or don't feel that they can give you anything. Some of them are like already in the like coach speak vein already. Some of them will tell you kind of what you want to hear if you're, you know, working for this team site or that team site. If I came to you as a Florida team site writer, you may tell me that Florida's in my top three or t- Florida's in your top three because, you know, you know I work for a Florida website, but then you tell the LSU website and the Georgia website and the South Carolina website the same thing thing um so it is funny when you interview these kids well okay so remember when we talked about hey like somebody, if somebody signed with michigan state uh would they would they have options off the table here other schools did take commitments from players because they thought that he had signed with georgia which he had but georgia did not turn the letter of intent in now he can't sign another, another letter of intent zach evans is just going to enroll somewhere at some point. Now he's already graduated from school. He's an early enrollee. So for the most schools, it's too late for him to enroll for like January, you know, starting spring semester. But if he picks a school on the quarter system, he could still enroll there to so one of those schools. The, the the so the other thing is very quickly, you don't have to sign a letter of intent. And Correct. it behoo it behooves the best players in the country probably not to. But I know you've done work on this. Uh, Andy Staples now at the Athletic did some stuff on this when he was at um, when he was at SI. Uh, wh- what was it, Demetrius Robertson? Yes, didn't the, the, sign the, one? the Georgia receiver who ended up signing with Cal um, initially. Now he transferred back to Georgia, but he did sign with Cal. He waited uh, and never signed. We, did, we've had a couple sign, of guys. I guess is the better is the nomenclature. Didn't sign, just shows up on campus. Who was the backer for the Georgia who got drafted by the Bears? Um, Roquan. Re- yeah, Roquan, now he did not delay his thing a whole lot, but he did not end up signing a letter of intent, I believe. I will note, you can only sign one letter of intent. Like So even if you get let out of it, you can't sign somewhere else, but you can Just enroll sure. somewhere else. So hey. that's that's the situation with Evans. If I was trying to get paid out as a recruit, <laughs> I would wait and wait and wait and wait because the desperation grows. And particularly with the portal now, you may get a portal kid that leaves – um, you know, in April or spring practice or whatever in June, um, and now you're really screwed. And if I'm, you know, if I'm a kid and I'm not graduating until May or June anyway, graduating high school until May or June anyway, it yes, it may behoove to hold out and figure it out. But I do want to ask. So what? Ha- so Evans does doesn't sign, won't sign again. What happens? He just shows up. He just says, "Hey, I'm going to enroll at your school," and the school says, "Awesome." He may he may sign some financial aid papers with them or something like that. Um, now here's a, here's a scenario for you. Florida, who has had a really nice, I would say, last six weeks of recruiting, done a really nice job, a little bit of a kind of a, a crash, not crash, they, they, they missed on their top two kids today in in Gibbs and, uh, and Avante Williams, who shockingly picked Miami. I did not see that coming. Uh, nobody on the 24-7 Sports Crystal Ball did either. They All 15 were to Florida, so uh, the, the relationship with Miami staff apparently won out there. If you're and Gibbs is a running back who I, I think is really good. He ended up sticking with Jeff Collins after, by the way, people at the uh, the All America Bowl told me that he had introduced himself as uncommitted because he was <laughs> one of those kids that didn't sign early on yeah. with Georgia Tech despite being committed. If you're Florida, 
don't you try to get in on Zach Evans? Like you, you trust your locker room and your culture enough that you think you can bring that kid in there and and uh, and he's not going to mess up your locker room. I think you go after him. Yeah, and you know Florida did obviously bring in transfer Lorenzo Lingard, who's going to need right. a waiver to play. I think. So we'll see. And I want to know if he's healthy out. or not. Like he was freaky athletic in high school. I know he, he he blew the knee at Miami. Like if he's healthy, he could be a really really nice help for the Gators. I, I just it'll be interesting to see who continues to go after um, Evans. I know Tennessee's been after him. I know Ole Miss has been after him. A and M maybe out of spots. I, I need to check on that. Uh, like I don't know if he's actually going to sign like or in, announce where he's going today. When you say out of spots, you mean like literally? I mean it can't take anybody because they're capped out. Correct. On yeah. Kids. Yeah. Yeah, and the numbers get weird because when you have early enrollees, you can back count them, and when you've got players that leave for the draft, and it, scholarship math is its own science, truly. Exactly. Um, okay, so at Kivbot asks, uh, can you expand on what role high school coaches play in college recruiting? Is it just talking to college recruiters about upcoming players, or do they get involved in the Bagman Network too? Um, I, I'm just going to let you go here because this is – this is your expertise. Sure. So uh, they absolutely talk to college recruiters about their players. But, man, there's a lot of it here. Like mo- a lot of times the mail gets sent to the player's school and not even the player's house sometimes, right? And the, the coach will talk to the player about it. He'll, he'll give it to the player. Hey, man, like this is one you shouldn't throw away. You should take a look at this. Uh, you know, like a lot of times the kids want to bounce questions out the coaches. A lot of times, Richard, these kids don't have reliable transportation to camps and, and campuses and whatnot. And so oftentimes – it's not the parent taking them on these visits. A lot of times it's it's the high school coach taking them on these visits. And so uh, within that, there is a little element of the bagman game going on, of course. Uh, a lot of times high school coaches will get some gas money to take a player up there. That's not really within the rules. Uh, but sometimes they'll get uh, get a lot of gas money, like for <laughs> for a boat or maybe like like maybe get that jet fuel money, you know? Um uh, and that's fine, man. Like, I don't know. My state, Florida, I'm rooting for those coaches to get that because the, the, the starting pay for these high school teachers who, who are also football coaches in Florida is is embarrassingly low. Right. Like, to that, the point where we have – we got good high school coaches in, in Florida leaving for the state of Georgia because they're getting paid about double. That is a subplot to why Georgia is getting so good. It's a subplot to why edgewise – Florida is eroding, and particularly it's a subplot to why some of these players come out and they're greener than they otherwise would be or more wet behind the ears than they otherwise would be because if I'm a, you know, if I'm a smart, talented, whatever high school coach, I'm going to go to Georgia. I'm going to go to Texas. I'm not necessarily going to go to Florida because of the pay for all for all of how good Florida high school football is it it boggles the mind that the pay has not come up to you know I guess market rate is the, is the best way to say it adding to that it has created a power vacuum uh somewhat in that some of these kids now latch on to their seven on seven coaches even more some of whom are awesome and really have like the kids best interest at heart and some of whom perhaps are not quite as much um so i mean I know, we saw some of those dudes walking around the, the coaching commission uh, <laughs> yes which is interesting yes uh okay so, yeah last one from mcbricks um 
Is Kevin Sumlin doing anything noteworthy in recruiting? He had success in Arizona when at Texas A&M. Um, yeah, I mean, someone's doing some noteworthy stuff in recruiting, but it is not in a good way. Um, you know, you brought Kevin Sumlin in to dominate uh, Phoenix and extend into California. Uh, he got really good players. Christian Kirk comes off the top of the top of my head from Phoenix to go to Texas A&M. Um, that was one of the things where it was like, okay, we brought someone in. We think we're going to start dominating and recruiting. They have stayed roughly where they were in the Rich Rod era slash backslid a little bit. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if you disagree with that. Um, you know, I think the issue is what he's not doing. Um, I know he came in after Spencer Rattler committed to Oklahoma, but were there overtures to flip him? Were there overtures to try to get him out of that Oklahoma commitment? I, I think he knew that there was no shot there. I mean, realistically, like Oklahoma just produced two Heisman winners in a row. Mm. And okay. like they he he was their hand picked guy. Um so in uh in this class, Kevin Sumlin does not have a player ranked in the national top six hundred. Oh. Last <laughs> year they had uh two, but nobody inside the national top five fifty. Uh <laughs> Previous year they had one, uh, Nathan Tilford, uh, who was a top top two like two hundred twenty five kid, and then one other dude inside the top five hundred. Uh, look, yeah, it's it's not going well there. Um, Arizona State is is doing a much better job than they are. I- and that is that's absurd to think of. I mean, the thing was that Herm was not going to be able to get it figured out. That Herm was going to get left behind. That I was there the year or the summer that Herm got got uh, hired, and they were worried that they were you know going to get laughed in recruiting, but also that Arizona had a schedule that set Arizona up for success quicker, and that they were that was why they were going to get left behind because Arizona was going to start outstripping them. In a potential future, um, like Bud, why is Bijan Robinson not an Arizona Wildcat? I mean, it, this is one of the best running backs in the country. Grew up in Tucson, or at least played high school in Tucson. I, I think he's just—I don't want to say this in a way that's going to make people think I don't like Arizona because I have no problem with the University of Arizona. He—he's too good to stay in the state. <laughs> like, no, like, no. <laughs> look, look at the history of kids in Arizona. If you're really, really, really good. You leave the state, and he's going to Texas. Yeah, exactly. Like those Arizona schools were not were not serious options for him. I I, I don't not in the end. I, I don't think. Um, that's just that's just the thing that happens. Like Arizona and Arizona State, they're they're at different levels of success right now in terms of like last year. But overall, they're similar in that neither have ever won anything really big. Not not in our lifetimes, right? And we're, we're I don't think Arizona's. Age, but, ever been to the Rose Bowl? That's the thing. They've never been to the Rose Bowl. They've been in the Pac-12 since the 70s. Um, Arizona State has done it once? Jake Plummer era? Uh, did they go Rose Bowl? Because I know they went Fiesta Bowl against like Ohio State. May, yeah. Yes. That that must have been what it was. Okay. It was a Fiesta. Because that was the year that uh, I think that was the year that like Miami also uh, had to beat UCLA, UCLA to knock them out and it was the Edger and James team. You know what um, year that it was? Honestly, it was the year Florida won the national title because they they beat did go to Ohio the Rose, State. dude. Yeah, yeah, they they went to the Rose '96. You're right. Yeah, that's the year they beat Ohio State and it helped Florida win the national championship that year. That's actually how I remember it. Um, okay, we'll stay on the West Coast because I this is an Ask PAPN from at RJ underscore rights. Um, it's it's USC time. Let's talk USC. 
We would be remiss on this show if we didn't. Um, USC, this signing class, Jason Kirk is going to have, I believe, a read option newsletter coming really soon, probably by the time you hear this, about what this USC class is like in recent history. Um, I it it boggles the mind that USC is going to have the signing class that they're going to end 2020 with. It's crazy, man. But yet, if I told you that... Okay, so a lot of us in the national media assume that Helton would be fired. And... And it's... I mean, a lot of coaches out west that's, that's assumed the Helton was going to be fired. Yeah, it wasn't just like all these national folks thought he was going to be fired and they, and they were wrong. Yeah, they were wrong. They weren't the only ones that were wrong here. Local coaches... Local media all thought there's no way he's going to last the season, especially not once JT got hurt. And I really believe that USC basically had to recruit this year with uh, a head coach in Clay Helton who was perceived to be a lame duck coach. Now, USC ended up not making a move, which is pretty surprising. But this recruiting class, in my opinion, is a reflection of USC having to recruit with a guy that everybody thought would be fired. And they just never ended up firing him. So I do believe that a lot of the kids who probably would normally consider USC would have probably considered them if they had announced a new head coach in time for these kids to uh, you know to to consider them. But like they didn't happen because they didn't announce a coach at all. They kept Clay Hilton, and if you recall, they waited and waited and waited to announce that he was going to stay. So I believe USC kind of kneecapped Clay Hilton there. Uh, as well by by waiting so long to say, hey, we're not going to make a change. Particularly because everybody kind of knew that there was going to have to be some staff turnover if you brought him back. Like, you weren't going to bring him back with the whole staff, particularly on defense, that kept Graham Harrell, which was huge. But, um, you know, when that staff turns over, it becomes another thing of the relationships aren't there, you're building up from scratch, you are already not the dominant power in recruiting. Like we've said on the show before, there was a time when if you were a good player west of the Rocky Mountains and USC wanted you to go to USC, you went to USC. And it's not like a drop in bag situation. It's USC, it, it everything. You go to USC. Um, that has changed. Um, case in point, Kayvon Thibodeau does not play for USC. That's the one, that is the one in just very recent history that always sticks out to me. There's no excuse that Kayvon Thibodeau is at Oregon and not at USC. Now, I know his recruiting played out a certain way, but just on its face, number one defensive end in the country from L.A. didn't go to USC. Exactly. That's that's the deal, man. Like, I, I think there are some deeper-seated issues at, at USC as far as, like, does USC still think, hey, we can be USC without spending the kind of money that other schools spend now? Like, is, is that becoming an issue there? But I do believe that's secondary to keeping Clay Helton. And I'm not saying Clay Helton's a terrible coach or anything like that. I, I don't necessarily think that he's terrible. Uh, but I do believe that you have an issue uh, where people thought he wasn't going to be there. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, I'll consider USC once, uh, you know, once this – this change is made, and the change was just never made. Yeah. Yeah. As the world turns. Uh, but, Elliot, we must first send our love to Stephen Godfrey. Uh, Stephen Godfrey has had his third child. The baby is here. Beautiful baby girl. We send our love to Godfrey and the whole family. Congratulations. Uh, we will see you back um, when you get back, hopefully, as soon as 
as possible. It'll probably be roughly the end of March or April when Godfrey returns to us. Um, from then until, this is kind of going to be my show. It's uh, Dad is gone and I'm throwing a party. Uh, that that party will unfortunately not include my guy here, Bud Elliott. Bud, um, enlighten us. Tell us what's going on. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to do this show. I mean, I, we really we appreciate y'all um, embracing us. I, I know initially it was really tough with without Bill. Um, you know, I've been at Vox now for for about a decade, and I, I appreciate y'all giving us the time to, to work on this thing. It's it's been awesome. Um, unfortunately, I, I am leaving uh, the show, so it's going to be a, a Richard led show now, especially until uh, Godfrey comes back off paternity leave. Uh, not going to say where I'm going, but uh, you know, Jelani, thanks as well. And uh, you guys, I really enjoyed doing this. You know, it, it was it was a whole lot of fun, and uh, you'll see me somewhere else soon. And I know the show is going to continue to to really be the powerhouse that it is, and and be an awesome listen. I'm going to keep listening. Yeah, uh, Bud is Bud is really special to me personally. In the last few months of this um, doing this show, have been a lot of fun as we've figured it out. Um, you know, obviously halfway through the season, all three of us kind of came together and figured out why are we doing two separate podcasts? Let's just do it with the three of us. And um, you know, we've got good response and and consistently, uh, comprehensively, I do appreciate everybody who listens for reaching out, saying that they've suck with the show, for sticking with the show as we continue to figure out formats. Um, Bud. I mean, Bud is the reason I am at Vox Media. I, I'm not overstating it. Um, I sat in my parents' living room a week before I was going to move to Bristol, Connecticut and work for ESPN, and Bud called me and said, SB Nation's hiring college football writers. We want you. Um, and, and so began a process that quite literally has us both on this podcast right now um, and me sitting in this seat in New York City in these offices. Um, Bud is incredible. The way he views the sport, the way he views the world, honestly, um, is really fun. And, and it's fun to always sit and, and learn. And, you know, I never come out of a conversation with Bud about anything not being enlightened and, and not having um, my perspective changed in some way, shape or form. And um, but I appreciate you. I, I cannot wait to see what's next for you and, and your whole family, man. Uh, this is it's going to be a lot of fun to watch you do your own thing for a little bit. I appreciate it, man. I, I'll, I'll see you guys soon. Absolutely. And uh, I'll be back next week.